Welcome to Better Off Red. Hey everyone, I'm Danny Catch. I'm Eric Ruder. Unfortunately, Jen is not here with us today, but we're going to soldier on. We have a pretty awesome episode, so that'll make it easier. Um, we're talking to the award-winning author and journalist Anand Gopal about Trump's announcement last month of these immediate pullouts, which have been sort of rescinded. Not quite walked, immediate. Walked back <laughs> um, from both Syria and Afghanistan. But rather than just getting into Trump's weirdness, more importantly, um, this is an interview that Eric uh, has done with, with Anand getting into um, what's actually going on in both those places and the different machinations happening in, in U.S. policy. Am I missing anything in that description? That's pretty much it. I think okay. that's fair enough. Cool. Um, before that, though, we've got a couple different things in our opener. One is we had to talk about the L.A. teacher strike. We talked about it the last couple of weeks, and they just won a massive victory. We've spoken a couple of times with Jillian Russom, one of the teacher activists helping to lead that strike. But we're taking a different approach in the aftermath of the strike. We're talking to a couple of solidarity activists, Hector Rivero, who's been on this podcast before, talking about Mexican politics, and Victor Fernandez, both of whom were involved in building support. And in particular, we talked to them about one of the key dynamics of the strike, which was the overwhelming support among the Latinx community in Los Angeles and what that was about. And Victor in particular was involved in the Tacos for Teachers initiative. And there's just a lot of good stuff that came out in that interview. And we also speak with Nick Estes from the Red Nation about the incredible attention given to a viral video that showed um, some kids from a Catholic high school in northern Kentucky staring in the face and mocking a indigenous elder in Washington, D.C. And we unpack that and many of the important strands of that story that were completely buried in all of the mainstream news coverage. So we stick around. All right, so now we're going to turn to our interview with Hector and Victor. But before we do that, we should just take a moment, since the strike has now been settled, to talk about what was actually won. I mean, for days, for more than a week, people from across the country, teachers, students, activists have been watching what's been unfolding in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and there are all these questions and back and forth and debates about what was won, what wasn't, and so on with this new contract. So, Danny, I know you've been following events there very closely. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about what the strike was able to accomplish. Yeah, you know, it's actually a good challenge to try to sum up quickly what was won because they won a lot of different things. And that was one of the unique elements of this strike. But before I get into that, I, I guess it's worth saying, first of all, Initially, uh, the L.A. school district and their billionaire privatizer who was brought in to not run the schools, but, but privatize them. And to then, run them into the ground. Yeah, OK, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, was they aimed to create a two tier system, you know what I mean, to get existing teachers to accept a decent wage increase in return um, for gutting benefits for for new hires. That was that was um um, off the table very quickly. Awesome. And among the things that were won were really important reductions in class sizes, which this, this still has a long way to go to actually have decent class sizes. But LA had class sizes up to 46. And even then had a provision where the state, this, the district could waive that 
whenever they claimed a fiscal emergency, um, that's now gone. You know, so that's incredibly important. Um, 300. What's gone is the ability for the district to, to wave. wave the cap mm-hmm. as well as reductions in, in the right. class, sizes. which phase in over a few years. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, by the end of it, there's still going to be classes in the, in the high thirties, but it puts the union in a position and then keep fighting for lower right. classes. And the fights were always meaningless as long as the district had the ability to waive right. the caps to begin with. Right. So it was, it was a really bad starting point. They won major gains. Speaking of bad starting points, LA schools often had no nurses in them on a full-time mm. basis over the next two years, 300, nurses are going to be hired so finally every school in la one of the richest cities in the country is going to have a nurse i know it sounds sad to say that that that's a victory but these are real real victories hiring more counselors hiring um more librarians but even in addition to that the scope of other things that was one that the legally the district was not required to bargain over Hiring a full-time lawyer to help undocumented students and their families with their cases. Creating commissions, a joint task force to, that are mandated to reduce standardized testing by 50% wow. over the life of the contract. Reducing um, the police searches in schools that are supposed to be random but disproportionately hit students of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I, could, I could go on and on, but it's, it's a, it's a, we'll link to um, you know, uh, an, a story that, that, that covers what they want. It is really impressive and really raises the sights for people, teachers certainly, but really I think everyone about what unions that have a vision of being on the side of fighting racism and fighting for social justice, what kind of a force you know, they can be. Awesome. Well, thanks for that summary. That That is actually an impressive rundown. And I'm sure there's still ongoing debates and discussions of people who've got, you know, things that they they hoped that they had, would be able to win and maybe mm-hmm. didn't, but, you know, and so on. But I think what is really exciting and that we kind of talk about in this discussion with Hector and Victor is the way in which this was a victory that was the result not just of what United Teachers Los Angeles did, but actually a whole strategy that put at the center a struggle to fight for better schools for whole communities across Los Angeles. And that that really changes the whole calculation in some key ways, because now you have rather than it, it's like teachers trying to get their piece and so on. You've got a whole movement that brings together the public sector workers in this city combined with the communities they serve and arraying them against the billionaires and the and the various politicians that attempted to to, to stand in their way. Totally. And, you know, just to uh, briefly introduce our guests. So Hector and Victor are both uh, socialists in Los Angeles, members of the of the ISO. Hector has been a guest on before in episode 21, talking about the election of AMLO uh, in Mexico. Victor received, became quite famous over the last week. As one it of the, might have been the taco costume. <laughs> yeah, right. As the human taco, one of the main organizers of the Tacos for Teachers campaign, which he's uh, going to talk about. But it's a great, you know, they both talk about the strategy and they also talk about as as folks from from, as from immigrant families themselves, um, what, you know, what it felt like being, being a part of this strike that was both a demonstration of union power and a demonstration of immigrant pride in, in, in an in immigrant solidarity. city. Yeah. yeah. So I th- we think you'll like it. Here we go. Hey, Victor and Hector, welcome to Better Off Red. Hi, great to be on the show again. Yeah, welcome back. I should have said welcome back, Hector. Thank you. And welcome, Victor. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I wanted to start off with, you know, this amazing um, strike and this really solid contract that was won by the UTLA. Key dynamic of it was revealed in a poll put out by Loyola Marymount during the strike, which showed 82% support for the strike among public school 
parents, which is pretty remarkable when you consider the chaos that a teacher strike can cause for working class families. And as you know, it's been widely reported that the vast, you know, huge, sizable majority of the, the L.A. school system uh, po- school population is Latinx. How was the union able to win such solid support among Latinx Angelinos? I think that we have to really credit the work that the union United Teachers of Los Angeles did before the strike. As many people will know, the strike uh, negotiations were going on for 20 months. A key component of that has been parents and the outreach that teachers themselves have done in their schools to inform parents about the negotiations, to inform parents about their demands, and also to convince parents um, of the need to go on strike if necessary. And I think a lot of parents understood that, that it would mean a qualitatively uh, improvement on the education of their students. And having informed parents is key because once they know the issues, they, they clearly lined up right next to the teachers. I mean, some of these schools teach treat parents like dirt, especially charter schools. I've had the experience that here at the Accelerated Schools in Los Angeles, which is a charter school, many parents feel like um, the school board does not listen to them, that they actually, in fact, don't want them to be active participants in the education of their students. And uh, a lot of parents feel really sidelined. Last, um, um, the Accelerated Schools is, 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 a, is a charter uh, that's still on strike. Um, they're still negotiating a contract. And the parents tried to deliver a letter to the CEO of this charter school. Um, and they called the cops on all these parents wow. and immediately parents and children. And they were, you know, he told them that he, w- he would not negotiate with terrorists. Right. Wait, this, <laughs> is, this so- is parents and students at the school. That's right. Parents and students were trying to uh, enter the accelerated schools and um, the the people from the board told the parents that they would not be held hostage by terrorists who were trying to, you know, break into the school. And these are parents that take their kids there. So Latino parents feel uh, like they are being treated very unfairly. Nevertheless, it has been Latino parents who have been a key source of support for for the teachers and again if if parents keep their kids out of school the schools lose money right and so that's hitting the charters um and the schools where it hurts and so i think that um the the, i really really think that la um the utla teachers did a great job in outreaching to parents what a follow-up question on that and this, this could be for either of you um but what one of the things that was, that's notable about, you know, UTLA's approach in the, in the lead up to this contract was pretty, pretty, it's pretty well known at this point. They weren't just fighting around issues of pay. It was a lot about school funding, hiring more nurses and counselors for wraparound services. But they also were fighting for demands that the um, around a fund for undocumented students against uh, ending the practice of so-called random police searches in schools, which are not random at all when you look at the, the race and ethnicity of the students who were searched. To what degree do you feel like those efforts were uh, reached, you know, beyond sort of activists and into um, non-activist Latinx communities and, and, the, and, and folks actually, you know, to, to make an impact on folks seeing what, what side the union was on? There's, there's a couple of things that, uh, for me, I think stood out, especially doing the Tacos for Teachers thing. Uh, I think the, the immigrant aspect was a huge aspect, especially in the, in the east side schools. 
um, as well as the the fact that um, that uh, a lot of the teachers. It was very interesting. I was I was having a discussion with one of the teachers from Garfield, and they've made a lot of kind a lot of those kind of connections within their own schools. The interesting thing about it was that uh, the the mainstream media here in LA, especially the Latin uh, American media like Univision and Telemundo, were um, were spreading a lot of the you know a lot of false news if, if to use the nomenclature and the they the union as well as the teachers themselves got around that by um, having um, social media connections with uh, with the parents and the students and therefore were able to kind of talk to both parents and students that the strike was not only about um, about uh, you know the the six percent raise versus the six point five percent raise which uh, which a lot of the media started making out in the very beginning, but actually made those kind of connections with people on the ground, um, uh, a large part through social media and uh, there are other conversations that it was about, you know, this is a struggle for your students and your teachers. And I think it's very important because a lot of, uh, a lot of the immigrant communities coming to the United States see as education as an important aspect of the immigrant experience. That was when, you know, I came to the United States, one of the things my mom told me is like, so you could get a better education and, and making those kind of connections that this is the, this is an actual fight for the education of the children, I think was a, was a big deal. I think we also had some connections with some uh, students from Black Lives Matter in our school about their experiences of what they've been doing with the random searches. And I think those two were, were really big and important key issues. Uh, I think another key issue that was uh, that was that got to the heart of people were the the fact that there's no nurse on call, and so like that's a huge safety issue for parents in schools. Uh, and uh, like when there was a there was a, a student that got shot the other day. It was on the news about a year ago. Somebody brought a, a gun to school and somebody got shot, and there was not a nurse on call. So that, that wasn't their day to have a nurse. So one of the teachers had to apply the tourniquet and then hope for the EMTs to arrive on time. So all of those things, I think a lot of parents, especially, you know, parents who are, like care about education and the safety of their kids. Um, and, you know, especially with, uh, you know, both the safety from uh, events that might happen or from the cops uh, saw the strike as an important thing in their eyes. So that takes me right into... Uh Another question based on something that Hector, that you wrote, you wrote an article back in October in Socialist Workers, you know, it was a report on, on one of the many events that UTLA had organized uh, in, in different communities, you know, in the lead up to the, to the campaign. And this one was, you know, was, was around building those connections. And, and you wrote, for immigrant students like myself, public schools have been a key place for us to learn English and adapt to life in the U.S., which comes with so many, which comes with so many challenges and outsiders, uh, for outsiders. So the question, personally for you, and Victor, this could also be a question for you. How did just the experience of building solidarity for this strike, a strike that fairly uniquely uh, forefronted the experiences and needs of immigrant and Latinx teachers and students, um, what did it mean for, for y'all to see this kind of a strike win, not just widespread support, but national attention, you know, and obviously the backdrop of this is having Trump as president and literally happening in the middle of this government shutdown over, over a racist border wall, not that far to the south uh, of Los Angeles. Yeah, 
Um, thank you for that. I think, you know, it's, uh, God, I could say so much about this. I mean, I'll yeah, just if you could just say this that. in about, you know, a minute, that would be, yeah, be of great. Course. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just share that for starters, it made it a much easier strike to support, right? Because I feel that, um, even though I'm not a teacher at LAUSD as a former LAUSD student, I, um, I definitely benefited from having, uh, access to public education, right? Um, which again is, is free and is public and allows people to uh, actually um, right try to try to have a better chance uh, all later on in life and of course it is huge to help uh, children socialize and become socialized right in the United States so in that sense it totally helped and that UTLA had important demands right that are also important to the Latinx community made it again a better even an easier strike to support. You know, I think that um, we also should understand the defense of public education as a defense of one of the last uh, uh, resources in Latinx communities that is that is, again, public and that is free. Right. Um, but also one that we should support and defend so that when the refugees who are asking for asylum so that when they get to the United States, they also have a place, right, to learn English to uh, uh, and to, to get a, a free ed quality education, right? And so uh, in many ways, this, this is a community strike because of these issues, because of how important education is for, for the Latinx community. And, you know, I just want to say one last thing. Um, in some, and sometimes people think that Latinx parents are victims, but I think what, what we've, we've seen here in Los Angeles is that Latinx parents are heavily involved, some of them for 10 years or more in their children's education, right? And that, you know, we have groups like East Side Padres Contra la Privatización that have been the most militant, that have been holding speakouts outside of the offices and outside of the houses of some of these board of trustee members, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, Latino parents are a key ingredient into, into the success of this strike. And that is because we understand that for the Latino community, having access to public education is very important. And it's something that the Chicano movement fought for, and it's something that communities here in LA have fought for as well. And it continues to be a, a thread of the struggles of immigrant Latino immigrants in, in this country, right? Especially because the language barrier can hold somebody back so much. And so again, this is something that is key to defend because of the impact it has on, on our, on our future and quality of life. Cool. So, you know, this is going to be the last question because I know y'all have to go and Victor, I think you're literally going now to help, uh, provide tacos for teachers at the accelerated charter strike, which is still happening. I don't know if it'll still be, hopefully it'll be resolved with a victory by the time this episode airs. But um, if you want to talk a little bit, this is an initiative tacos for teachers that received national attention. And, and you know, I just, if, if you could talk a little bit about again, how being involved in that campaign, what, what it taught, what, what it showed you about some of the dynamics Hector was talking about and, and, and how folks in the Latinx community were viewing this strike. Yeah, um, the idea I think germinated probably a few uh, a, a few weeks before the strike. Um, Hector had talked to me about it, and then our other member Claire um, mentioned it in in one of our meetings. And what we ended up doing was uh, having a conference call with the DSA, and together was born the Tacos for Teachers campaign. Initially, being a um, GoFundMe page, 
where we thought we'd get about 3,000 if we were lucky, it's up to 42,000 now. Uh, and what ended up happening is we went on a campaign. We organized with a local taco shop who actually called us but was somewhere where we normally go. And they wanted to uh, be a part of it. And we fed about 18 different locations, uh, some of them either large rallies, a good amount of them schools. I think our tally so far has been around 7,700 people that we've fed and we've spent um, about $32,000 of the 42000 with the rest going to, uh, to the strike fund. What was very interesting was that um, there was a lot of, a uh, lot of positives coming out of it. Teachers were in, like very happy that they would be able to get a meal, um, and that it was also tacos. Being LA, being an immigrant city, and um, having a large immigrant population uh, means that everybody's very familiar with that kind of food, and uh, a lot of people like it. I think I got quoted on the news saying nobody hates tacos. And, um, but the interesting thing about it was that we weren't the only ones, and so. In many of the pickets, especially in RFK, we'd be serving tacos one day. And then next day, since I would be going to that one regularly, people would be serving tamales. And then people were like, thank you for the tamales. I'm like, I didn't do it. It was just parents who themselves realized the same thing, that this is the one way that we can not only show up and provide support, not only not, not take our kids to school as a show of solidarity, which was a huge show of solidarity with some schools showing up to 20% attendance uh, as opposed to 100 or 80 or 90% attendance, which is normal at some schools. So there, there was that also that effect. I remember one of the taco vendors I was talking to, she's like, yeah, we've gone to all the, uh, all the protests and marches and also my kids are not going to school. Because, uh, you know, until this strike is over, then we send our, our kids to school. And that was a huge show of support by people who understood that, that that was the way to also withhold money from LAUSD so they can really feel the pain of it as well. And then people went on top. There was, a, there was somebody, that I remember in uh, RFK, it was raining, it was cold, and they made a giant batch of um, arroz con leche. And uh, they were just handing it out. And it was just a couple that decided that they didn't even know much about the strike, just showed up in their car, and they were like, here, have some arroz con leche, have some arroz con leche. And especially in some schools, they saw every single day just people coming and providing that kind of food. And that, that was really exciting. That was really beautiful. And it was a lot of, like, people of color. It was a lot of different uh, immigrant groups. But, you know, they made it happen with, with their own in incentive uh, um, and uh, their own kind of push and and we kind of were able to luckily get a lot of funding so that we could have a couple of organizers almost full-time working to, to feed so many people. Right now, before I leave, we're going to go feed Accelerated. And then there's a couple of other schools that we've made commitment to feed. So I think we're probably going to feed another 500 people. And depending on if we get more orders, we're going to keep on feeding people as, as part of the sort of ongoing strike support, even after the strike's already finished. Wow. <laughs> cool. Um, well, this has been, I mean, this has been way too short, of course, but I'm really glad we were able to have y'all on just to talk about, because I think it's an aspect of, of this strike victory that hasn't quite gotten... Um, enough attention obviously obviously the strength of the utla organizing is, is really key but i think seeing it in connection with with this powerful uh solidarity social movement y'all are talking about it's really important so, so thank you so much for coming on 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. Um, best of luck. Okay, so now we are going to be joined by Nick Estes. Nick and Melanie Yazzi were joined us a couple of episodes ago. That was episode 39 to talk about the Red Nation group that they're both leading members of. It's a radical indigenous group based in New Mexico. And we couldn't think of any folks better to come and join us to talk about the uproar that's been happening um, ever since the viral video happened of the, the MAGA hat wearing kids harassing Nathan Phillips on the mall. What I think is really important about this episode is that Nick gets into all the things that have been obscured um, by that story, which which reveals as much about power in Trump's America as what you actually saw on the video itself. So here it goes. So we're joined here with Nick Estes from the Red Nation. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, it's great to be on again. All right. So we really wanted to talk about this story that is being covered everywhere and talked about everywhere of this confrontation that took place. Um, And initially, the story revolved around a bunch of kids from a Catholic high school in northern Kentucky, actually right outside the city where I grew up. And um, where, you know, I mean, they were wearing notably they were wearing, you know, Trump's signature Make America Great Again hats and so forth. And a confrontation between one of these kids in particular, and an indigenous elder named Nathan Phillips, who's a Vietnam veteran and a longtime indigenous rights activist. And within a couple days of this story attracting lots of attention and lots of horror, really, at the way in which this kind of mob of white kids was taunting and mocking uh, a, a group of, of native people there, the, the narrative began to shift. And they started focusing more on, I think, because the kid's family hired a kind of fancy PR firm and so on. They really started to try to shift the blame to the black Israelites who clearly were playing a kind of provocative role. But as this story continued to pick up different components and so on, it seems that the that one of the key issues that really has been reported on practically nowhere was that the kids were there for the March for Life. Basically, Catholic students bust in from all over the country to participate in this anti-abortion rally. Um, But there were also lots of indigenous people there for the first national indigenous people's march in many years. And that story really just gets totally lost. So we wanted to really start by asking you to talk some about this event, what it represented and what's going on in terms of the mobilization that we're seeing that seems to be getting, you know, gathering new steam in the wake of the kind of attacks from Trump on indigenous people, as well as the, the kind of resurgence of activism, activism around the pipelines, Standing Rock and so forth. Right. So that is something that has been entirely eclipsed by a single incident. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a confrontation. I think that is more of the way that the 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 PR firm that was hired by this student is trying to um, uh, flip this story as a confrontation. Um, um, and and, 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 in, and in, in doing so, they kind of turn the tables on Nathan Phillips themselves and also this this march. And I would say this is this was more of an incident um, um, that has eclipsed in an entire movement. Um, and in this particular case, the Indigenous People's March in Washington, D.C. was really galvanized um, by this massive resistance effort on the part of Indigenous peoples following the inauguration of Trump in 2017. So... 
in March of 2017, two years later, you had a larger march of indigenous peoples as part of the Native Nations Rise March that really kind of signaled um, the, the, the beginning of the resistance to the Trump administration. And it was kind of a transition from, you know, the Obama era energy policies that made the Dakota Access Pipeline possible in the first place into a kind of new mode of resistance and understanding the threat that Trump posed um, to indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights. And so looking at that, you know, in the context of this particular march, we can understand that, like, this wasn't just one march. This was a march that was really kind of a nationwide movement. And um, that was entirely erased in the dominant narrative that came out after um, this incident between Nathan Phillips um, and these MAGA hat wearing Catholic schoolboys. Um, so the, the Indigenous March on D.C., um, brought together several thousand uh, indigenous um, activists and community members from around um, the country and around Turtle Island, North America. Um, and they really centered treaty rights um, and murdered missing indigenous women and the ongoing assaults against the environment and indigenous sovereignty. And so this was working in tandem, in my opinion, with the women's marches that were happening the next day. It wasn't a separate march in that sense. It was really kind of part of this larger wave of, of marches. And um, I was fortunate enough to attend um, the Women's March in, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was led by Indigenous women and which was using the same platform as the Indigenous Peoples uh, March. And, and in fact, none of us had seen the video. Um, we had just heard about the Indigenous Peoples Day March and we're like, wow, there's a, you know, there's a lot of positive energy, um, you know, and you know, this is what we're doing this day. And so in Santa Fe, like in many places, it was the first time indigenous peoples led the women's march and centered in, in that march were uh, murdered missing indigenous women and the ongoing battle um, against resource extraction in the Southwest and the Four Corners region more specifically. And so like when we think about this in a larger context of what's happening in the United States, um, we can see the election of the first two Native American women, um, Congresswomen, um, as kind of a signal of a repudiation of the Trump agenda, right? That it's not invulnerable and that it can be defeated. But also, you know, it's an affirmation that indigenous rights matter and that, like, you know, the average, you know, voting American sees this as a pressing issue. Um, and so that's really what was eclipsed in this entire incident that happened and how it's being framed is that it's it's almost erasing this historic momentum that's that's taking place right now it it is really striking how even in my, you know many of the media accounts that are horrified by what the Covington kids were doing you know that it's a liberal outrage about it but there's still something so much more uh, familiar comforting with a victim of through no fault of his own of Nathan, of Nathan Phillips is just sort of a victim. Then this weekend of actually activism and resistance and, you know, mm -hmm. coming from right. native communities again, not to implicate Nathan Phillips in that, who's there part of that uh, resistance. I, I did want you to talk a little bit more though, about the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. We, you know, in our, in our last interview, we got into this somewhat, but given that, one, you have the irony of the Catholic school kids who are there for an anti-women's march, which is what mm. the March for Life is. Yeah. And also this, right. this issue exactly. in indigenous communities being obscured. Why is this such a central issue, um, you know, gal galvanizing people? So the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women, you know, 
it's it's kind of a slogan that has been created more recently, but it kind of misses the fact that this is an ongoing kind of historical phenomenon um, since the first penetration of capitalist markets into North America. Um, they have targeted indigenous women specifically for resource extraction. So, for example, even if you look at the first autobiography that was written by a Native American woman, Sarah Winnemucca, she relates the start of the Bannock War um, and the, Shosh uh, the Shoshone War in, I think it was in 1978, um, at the Malheur uh, uh, Indian Reservation, which is now the Malheur Wildlife Reservation, uh, wildlife reservation i'll talk about that in a little bit and why that's important but she relates the rape of native women um, by these early cattle ranchers in this area the the foundation for this war and the taking of that land for um uh raising and for mining specifically and so in 2016 you have the bundys right who are literally the shock troops of privatization in a different way right trying to open up the Malheur Wildlife Reservation, where Sarah Winnemucca was actually um, um, from, you know, when she was writing this history about murdered and missing indigenous women and the, the invasion of, of white settlers into this region. And so you have the, the Bundys who are literally the, 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 the new iteration of, you know, settlers of a, of a time past, and they're invoking that as, as kind of their legacy. Um, and then, you know, in 2016, we also have, um, you know, the rise of kind of like the, the Trump movement and this, you know, white supremacist, very organized white supremacist movement, um, which is also centered around the, the, the continued, the new rounds of enclosure and the new rounds of privatization of so-called public lands, which are really just indigenous lands. And so in these communities where oil and gas um, exploration and oil and gas development is happening, you have an increased rate of disappearances of indigenous women and girls, um, and also murders and violence uh, against indigenous women's and women and girls. And so this is connected specifically to an underlying kind of like economic system. And you can read the reports that were just published by the Urban Indian Health Institute that actually highlight the fact that most of these cases are happening in off-reservation spaces and places that are like called what we call border towns. And the, the federal law enforcement officials have only identified 5,700 cases, right? But they don't even count um, um, race or ethnicity in a lot of these cases. And oftentimes the sentiment, as you can read in these reports, is, oh, it's just another dead Indian, right? Um, so it's not necessarily an epidemic because an epidemic is something that happens all of a sudden. It's, it's a historic unfolding phenomenon. Um, and it's really because of the activists going back to the Red Power movement, such as the women of all Red Nations who were making these connections, even going back as far as Winnemucca in the 19th century, um, that we're dealing with this. And this should be the issue that's making headlines on CNN. This should be the issue that's connecting Trump's energy policy to on the ground sort of like movements of uh, primarily by indigenous feminists. Wow. Well, well, yeah. Thank you. So, thank you so much, Nick. That That is what folks should be talking about. We're, we're really happy you're able to join us. Right on. Some cleaning.
they dreaming about, who they pray to. It's gotta be evil. The last 500 years been pretty damn lethal. Gather up the troops. And we hey, all, before we get you back to the regularly scheduled programming, just want to make a quick pitch for money. Um, everything we do really helps with money. Or you mean money helps everything we do? You know what? Yeah. <laughs> we need Jen here. Um, <laughs> we always is, need Jen here. Point is, we've really uh, been touched and inspired by the number of people who've become regular patrons, monthly patrons, by going to patreon.com slash betteroffredpod. And we could definitely use some more to be able to help us expand what we do, um, which we get a lot of requests for. So once again, if you want to become a monthly sustainer, anywhere from a dollar a month to more, go to www.patreon.com slash betteroffredpod. Thank you. Watch the evils inside the beach was the shit evil. Watch the eagle inside the regal shoot for the people. They say pistols and paper is poetry and power. And I die like a Hey, we're back. And now um, we're going to bring you Eric's interview with Anand Gopal. Anand is an incredible journalist. He's the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. It's one of the best books I've read um, in years. He's also written some really incredible on-the-ground reporting from Syria in The New Yorker and other outlets. So we'll link some of Anand's work in the show notes. And yeah, stick around. It's a great interview. Okay, so we're back with Anand Gopal. Thanks for joining me here, Anand. Thanks for having me. Cool. So, um, all right, we're going to get into the question first of Trump's rather abrupt announcement in, was it late December, that U.S. troops would be coming home from Syria post-haste. Then, after a few days of pressure um, in the media and so forth, Rush Limbaugh and um, the hard right and and liberal media. and liberal, right? Very critical, yeah. And essentially, within a few days, it's like right, the serious role is not happening. Then today, it just happens that the day that we had already planned to do this interview, there were headlines that actually U.S. is withdrawing from Syria. You had to kind of paw past the headline to find that, in fact. They're withdrawing, you know, some military hardware, but there's no drawdown in terms of troop strength and that that really has yet to be set any kind of timeline whatsoever for that process to unfold. So maybe you can help untie this knot. What is going on with all this back and forth? Um, what drove this announcement in the first place in your mind? And help us make sense of this. Well, you know, to understand this, I think we have to understand two separate things. One is the nature of Donald Trump and what he is and what he represents. And and, and two is the nature a of- A very US. stable genius. Uh, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what beautiful fingers. <laughs> um, and the second is uh, the nature of U.S. imperialism. Okay. So it, I, I like to think of Trump as- uh, a fascist with conservative characteristics, you know, um, versus a conservative with fascist exactly, characteristics, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is right, which that's, that's the status quo. Right? right. So Trump is somebody who is a right wing populist who has a, a, a base um, that he's appealing to. And um, I think we have to read everything that he's doing uh, in terms of his relationship to that base. And part of that is this isolationism, this sort of America first, uh, in quotes, scare quotes, um, this, this idea that America has been spending too much money, um, essentially maintaining its empire and it needs to get other people to do that for it. Um, and he, he believes this, you know, if you go back to things he's written, um, and spoke, spoken about for 20, 30 years, you know, he's been consistent on these questions. And 
um, he's he has many of the characteristics of a classic fascist in that sense. Okay, mm-hmm. um, the extreme xenophobia, the right wing nationalism, um, even the sort of corporatism. That at one point Trump even had the slogan said, "I am the country." I don't know if you remember that slogan. I didn't remember yeah, he, that. He, yeah, he, he had that. That was the slogan. I am America, which is a, a classic fascist slogan, right? right? So, but but the difference though is that you know historically fascism has been the product of a complete crisis in capitalism, and has also um, used a crisis in capitalism to build itself as a mass movement. And neither of those things are are the case today. You know, capitalism. Um, is not in the sort of acute crisis that it was, let's say, in 1929, and uh, Trump does not represent a mass movement. And so I think if you if you look at it in that way, then you can begin to understand the contradictions of of Donald Trump, which is that he has the ideas, but not the the, the structural um, sort of the structural uh, opportunities to to actualize those ideas. And so he's really kind of this right wing uh, fascist with conservative characteristics trapped in a uh, imperial liberal order. Right. Okay. Right. So he wants he to. He wants to be El Duce, but the, he, the, the, exactly. the conditions aren't quite the right. Conditions for him. aren't there for him to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So he wants to withdraw from Syria and from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, the, the um, sort of the imperial order, the, um, the generals that he's empowered essentially over the last few years, the deep uh, state, the de- well, right. <laughs> I mean, well, really, they I mean, they're not even the deep state because they're like right out there in the front of everything and, right, and talking right. about it. But, you know, they, um, they're trying to run the empire, um, as you know, as if it was business, business as usual, right. They're trying to protect American imperial interests in the Middle East as they always have done. So, what are, what are American imperial interests in the Middle East today? Primarily, it's about um, controlling access to um, strategic strategic resources like oil. It's about um, uh, having uh, control over areas and, and puppet regimes um, to hedge against the influence of Iran and Russia. And so the generals and the, more or less the entire establishment from, from the liberal side to the conservative side are unified on this question. Trump is a rogue actor and he, he differs on this question. So he wanted to withdraw the troops from Syria and Afghanistan. But uh, the, when, he, when he announced this, there was a, a kind of unanimous uproar from the establishment saying you can't do this because it's against American interests. Right. Both the quote left, like the various elements of the Democratic Party who are the kind of responsible stewards of imperialism, as well as the sort of more neocon, even all the way over to the kind of neocon People like John Bolton that even, you know, that Trump has kind of elevated to. Um, right. Well, the, yeah. And John Bolton is more of a classic neocon imperialist, right? Not a right wing fascist in the sense that Trump mm-hmm. is. Right? right. So I think that that's why you had um, uh, this controversy and and them coming to loggerheads where Trump announced this and the rest of the establishment uh, completely went up in arms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happened after that? Uh, and, I, and I do believe he was genuine in wanting those withdrawals, right? Mm-hmm. But what happened after that is the rest of the establishment basically came together. Lindsey Graham and Bolton, everybody else came together and and basically forced his hand and, and said that he can't do that. And so Trump walked it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, he walked back the, the Syria withdrawal. Um, so as it stands now, uh, the U.S. troops are supposed to withdraw within the next four months, but there's really no guarantee whatsoever that in four months that the same conversation is not going to happen again and they're going to just uh, kick the kick the can down the road and, and it's going to be another four months or eight months or 10 months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Afghanistan as well, uh, where 
um, this is a place where the U.S. has been at war since 2001 and is um, not doing well and hasn't been doing well really for 17 years. And he wanted to withdraw. And the generals and the other establishment figures came together and said that the time is not right to withdraw. And so I, I suspect or expect that there's going to be a, a, a walk back of that uh, as well. So what we're left with essentially is kind of incoherence at the top because Trump wants one thing and the rest of the establishment wants another thing. But probably that means that the de facto imperial interests are going to win the day and and the U.S. is going to stay in Syria and they're going to stay in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that is also the, I mean, kind of the, what it says about the way the whole situation works. Here we have the situation which there's an, the executive branch of government is in the hands of a fascist with conservative tendencies or, you know, what have you, this, this sort of what, the creature that is Donald Trump. Uh, it looks like the rest of the establishment is kind of just going to say, nope, not going to happen. Um, and then you saw today this kind of flurry of news coverage as they withdrew like a kind of token amount of hardware that U.S. is withdrawing from Syria, which kind of felt to me like, this was Trump trying to um, deliver something for his base, especially when he's getting, you know, hammered on the question of the shutdown and so on. So it seemed like a kind of um, a convenient set of headlines, but that really, again, didn't re- really represent any kind of deviation from the picture that you just painted. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, Trump is really posturing almost always to his base, right? I think he believes that he won because of that base. And and that's almost, I, we should read almost most of his actions or all of his actions through that prism. Um, but the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, uh, yeah, some like confabs were withdrawn and a few Humvees were withdrawn, but um, the 2000 or so U.S. soldiers on Syrian soil have not left. And if Bolton and his cohorts have their way, they'll never leave, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look historically, the U.S., has bases in like 100, 120 countries. And how many of those have they left uh, without being forced to leave? Mm-hmm. Right? Very few, uh, if none, in fact. And, and so I think that's the same case in, in, in Syria right now. Mm-hmm. So as part of this flurry of news coverage, one of the sort of secondary legs of that story uh, is that um, John Bolton sort of said, yeah, not only are we not withdrawing, but we will not withdraw until two conditions are met. One, ISIS is fully vanquished, which is a repudiation of what Trump had said before, which was, we won, ISIS is done. But nevertheless, that was what one of the conditions that Bolton said. The other was that um, there essentially would be assurances from Turkey that the Turks would not um, overrun the Kurds and basically, you know, massacre uh, one of the key allies of the United States, both in Iraq and Syria. Um, So kind of um, intriguingly then, or not then um, in response, of course, Erdogan says, uh, sorry, that's not the deal I got with Trump. And yeah, that's not going to happen. And then Mike Pompeo trying to sort of um, spin this to something that the, that the administration can live with says to the, to the, to the reporters, what, what I don't, you think there's some sort of conflict here between what Erdogan's saying and what, and what Bolton's saying? No, there's nothing here. This is just a media concoction that there's any sort of issue here. So maybe you can unpack what's happening there. What are, what is going on? What, what, one of the things was like, it was a phone conversation with Erdogan that, kind of sparked Trump to talk about withdrawal in the first place. So maybe you can start there and then kind of bring us through the story. Sure. The background of the withdrawal is that um, about three weeks ago, Erdogan uh, started saying publicly that he's going to invade parts of uh, PYD-held 
Syria, such as the city of Membesh. And can, can you explain what the PYD is? The, the PYD is um, uh, a Kurdish Maoist, anarchist Maoist organization um, that is essentially the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Um, and that's their branding in Syria. And they control about 20 to 30% of northeastern Syria. And they are closely allied to the United States. Yeah, and they've been one of the key elements in fighting ISIS. I mean, that has been their kind of the reason that the United States considers them an ally. But at the same time, they're also trying to carve out some sort of future Kurdistan, which puts them in some sort of tension with Turkey. Yeah, and and I mean, this is the same group that has been uh, waging an insurgency against uh, the Turkish state for for decades uh, Mm -hmm. because of the oppression of Kurdish people in Turkey. Right. And the success of the PYD as a fighting force and in terms of amount of territory they control and so on is seen as a sort of alarming source of inspiration for Kurds within Turkey. Yeah, absolutely. And not just Kurds within Turkey, but in within Iraq and within Iran as well. And and the PYD are organized in the old Maoist model with cadre and, um, you know, um, a vanguard that's off in the mountains that's training and then going back into the villages and leading the people. And they are by far the most cohesive and organized group in Syria, probably including the Syrian regime. And mm. so it was that uh, organization, uh, that that level of organization that allowed them to pretty rapidly take over 20 to 30 percent of the country. Erdogan's on the phone with Trump. What are they talking about and how does this end up with Trump sort of suddenly, you know, having this light bulb apparently, you know, flash above his head like, oh, I should be withdrawing, you know, from Syria. So Trump gets on the phone with him and uh, Erdogan lays out all his grievances saying, you know, you guys are supporting this terrorist group. And Trump says, well, you know what? (laughs) Okay, we'll just withdraw. And I think Trump was wanting this anyway, he had already said that by the end of 2018 that all troops would be withdrawn. And so I think it was just a sort of uh, an excuse, a convenient excuse for him to withdraw. And so he said, we're going to withdraw. And that was the announcement that, that came three or four weeks ago saying that the U.S. is going to withdraw. Right. And then that that triggered the whole backlash from the establishment. So Bolton, uh, you know, he what he's doing now is essentially trying to repudiate everything that Trump had laid out. Right. He's essentially mm-hmm. saying that oh we're gonna we're, we're gonna withdraw when ISIS is defeated and when um, the, Turkey agrees not to attack the quote unquote the Kurdish allies which means the PYD mm-hmm. which means effectively never mm-hmm. it means the US is never gonna withdraw because Turkey's sworn enemy is is the PYD so it's it's tantamount to asking you know the United States not to attack Al Qaeda or something or or whatever so. Um, Bolton was basically going, um, he saw the, the, the equivocation or the, the walking back by Trump, I think, as an opening for him to basically try to revert to the status quo ante. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. and, and so that's, that's where this current, current sort of um, fight between Erdo- Erdogan and the United States comes from. Right. So it's a new round of tensions between the United States and Turkey. Well, let's get into some of the other winners and losers then in terms of how this is all unfolding. But should I just add one, one important sure. thing, which is that at core, there's a core contradiction within American policy inside Syria, which is that they they feel, well, one is that they're inherently hostile or suspicious of the revolution in Syria, right? Mm-hmm. And two is um, they feel that the only ally, viable ally they have is the PYD. Mm-hmm. And but three is a part of NATO and they're supporting Turkey. So the, all of these three things can't be true simultaneously, right? And so something has to give. And that's why we're seeing all of these, these problems coming up. Mm-hmm, right. 
So it's always kind of like tacking one way and then sharply the other. And Pompeo saying, oh, there's no contradiction whatsoever between what Erdogan's trying to claim, which is that, you know, we have, we're giving no assurances and yet you're going to withdraw and we're going to go after the Kurds. Whereas Bolton is saying, no, you're not going to touch the Kurds and, you know, we're going to be here for a while. Right. But the core of this is because of the contradictions right. thrown up by the Syrian revolution, mm-hmm. right? And, and how does an imperial power intervene in this region when there is a force that's asking for the overthrow of a dictatorship and they could spread to other countries, Jordan, especially in Saudi Arabia, which is a real danger for the imperial order in, mm-hmm. in this area, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where these contradictions ultimately come from, is, is looking for some kind of co- actor that you can sort of manipulate and, and support, and there's where the PYD comes from. And then, you know, you, how do you reconcile that with the fact that Turkey is uh, their sworn enemy? There's no real solution to this, I think. And that's why we're going to continue to see these kinds of um, swerves and problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beyond the players that we've talked about so far, then, what can we kind of take from this in terms of who are the winners and who are the losers um, as a result of this sort of back and forth of, you know, this sort of zig and zag of U.S. policies? First of all, I'm, I'm assuming that we can say that the U.S. is going to come out not not looking kind of quite up to the task that um, that has kind of been able to, you know, for, for many years, of course, the United States was able to kind of call all the shots in the Middle East. We've seen that under pressure and increasingly serious ways um and this newest chapter in this uh kind of unfolding drama is not gonna help the united states regain any of that ground right um but what else can we say beyond that in terms of some of the winners and the losers in the region and the the various interests that they are pursuing well to understand the winners and losers today i think we should take a step back and look at how the middle east looked let's say in 2000 right which was that as you said american hegemony was more or less unquestioned in the region outside of Iran and Iran's proxies like Hezbollah. Okay. It Mm -hmm. was across the board, completely unquestioned. And you had these outliers or these rogue states, as the Americans would call it, who are resisting American hegemony. It's Syria to some extent, uh, definitely Iran and Hezbollah essentially in this area. That was it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, The first shock to that order was the Iraq invasion, which, uh, um, among other things, it, it basically... You're talking about 2003? 2003, Iraq yeah. invasion. The, the Iraq war was essentially an, a major defeat for American imperialism, which allowed Iran to have extraordinary influence in Iraq and then from there elsewhere, okay? And then the second um, second blow to American uh, imperial power in the Middle East was the Arab Spring, okay? Mm. Specifically in Syria, more than other countries. Okay? The reason being because... In in um, Syria, the um, this was uh, a, a, the Assad regime had a very ambiguous relationship with the United States, who was kind of an enemy of the United States, but at the same time, the U.S. was terrified of throwing its weight behind the revolution because it didn't know what that would um, what that would create, and so it took a very ambivalent position under the Obama administration, mm-hmm. right? And this indecisiveness because of the fear of popular democracy, popular uprisings, at the same time is also not um, loving Assad in a sense, right? That ambivalence created the space 
for other actors like Russia and Iran to, to exert their influence. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it would have been easy. It, it was easier in Egypt because, or in Bahrain, because these are American allies that the United States could just know from the beginning to throw its weight behind. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the problem was in Syria is because they didn't like Assad. He was, he was an enemy, but they also didn't like any popular alternative from below. So that, that kind right. of paralyzed and them. The, the Arab Spring helped to, they, they saw it as an opportunity to displace the Assad regime, but then they found they weren't sure who would be they, they the, need the, a proxy. New, the new exactly. regime. Right. And so, and then they couldn't find one that made sense to them in terms of serving their interests. They're now back to Assad, which by the way, Hillary Clinton was praising as a reformer and right. so on back in the early 2000s. So like they had kind of got to the point where they thought they had pretty much won the Assad regime to kind of joining the Western axis, so sure. to speak. Um, and then the Arab Spring sort of upended a lot of that. Exactly. And, you know, there were two actions they could have taken in the classic, uh, classic imperial mold, which is either throw your way behind one of the op- opposition groups or some of them and make them proxy forces mm-hmm. or throw your way behind the regime. Mm-hmm. And they effectively didn't either. Right. Right. And that ambivalence um, created the opening for Russia and Iran to, to, to exert itself in Syria. And so in that sense, Russia and Iran are, are the short-term winners of this. And the U.S. has lost a lot of influence in the Middle East because of this. Right. So, again, mm-hmm. it's important because the core of it is because of their hostility to fundamental popular democracy and uprisings, right? But now they're in a situation where they've lost a lot of influence. Now you have Trump come, uh, getting elected into office, who is uh, an America firster, who's very skeptical of the idea of, uh, of paying for American power. He thinks other people, he's not opposed to American power, imperial power. He just thinks other people should pay for it and run it for, for, mm-hmm. for the United States, right? Um, that's created a second kind of dis- uh, incoherence. And all of this has allowed winners today, which is, I think, the biggest winner is Russia. Uh, absolutely. In all of this, and more generally in, in the last four, four or five years, but also specifically in terms of the, um, the supposed withdrawal, I think Russia is a major winner. Why is that? Because uh, if the United States withdraws from various regions, then the PYD, the Kurdish um, Maoist anarchist group, will be forced to ask for the Syrian regime to come into to its areas to protect it against t- Turkish incursions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big victory for Russia, number one. And then number two, it's a big victory for Iran. Second reason why Iran's a, a big winner here is because of, uh, one of the, the main reasons why the United States wants to be in eastern Syria, where there's oil fields and, uh, you know, mostly desert and oil fields, is because um, they want to cut off a path that goes straight from Tehran all the way to the sea, mm-hmm. which would be there if, if uh, the U.S. wasn't in these areas, right? Um, so the uh, Russia and Iran are, are big winners, but a, another major winner in all this is Turkey because of course, um, their sworn enemy in the PYD was getting supported by the biggest superpower on earth. And now that superpower is equivocating. And so let's take, you know, as our sort of final part of this discussion, a step back and ask the question, um, how does the, how do these developments, um, shape what we might expect to see in the, in the near to medium term in the Middle East as a whole. In other words, um, and, and in particular, the question of that we kind of began to wrestle with at the beginning, which is, does Trump's grip on the executive branch and his attempt to implement this sort of America first, more kind of isolationist type of approach to world or global politics represent a real threat to American imperial interests? 
are we talking about a situation that begins to set up a sort of a real schism between Trump and the executive branch of the government that he controls and the rest of the or, or a large chunk of the U.S. ruling class, which really has benefited so enormously from the whole neoliberal world order that the United States sort of sat atop and was able to just derive massive profits for everything from its oil corporations to its cell phone makers to, you know, everything in between. I mean, is this a, um, are, are we looking at the unraveling of the American, the long American century, or is it something that's way less kind of consequential than that. And then this is really more of like a temporary swerve in what is kind of a more stable uh, and, and, you know, system than it might appear right at this particular moment. Well, we only have another two years uh, and then everything can change again. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, um, just speaking about Trump himself, I do think he represents a major, major challenge to the way U S empire has, has functioned. Um, not to the way, not to, as you phrase it, like America sitting on top of the neoliberal world order. No, I mean, Trump is as neoliberal as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's, that changes, but in terms of the U S ruling class being able to, to profit, uh, through the ability of U S imperialism to, to control, to have hegemony over large parts of the globe, that's what's being threatened, I think. Right. And I think there's absolutely a schism. seems like what you're saying is that whatever deviation from the sort of standard um, assumptions of U.S. imperialism he represents isn't, you don't think is going to be able to kind of really forge some sort of long lasting shift in terms of how these relations um, have been structured in the past and or how they will attempt to be structured again by the United States in the future. That This is a sort of more of a, this is more of a swerve as opposed to some sort of real shift that we're, that we're watching. That's right. I think it's a swerve, but I think it's an expression of, of really, uh, at the end of the day, the effects of neoliberalism and declining living standards and everything else that's happened, globalization around the world, and especially in this country, that uh, somebody like Trump, who represents the far right, could, could be seen as an alternative for some section of the population, right? So there's an underlying problem here that unless that's addressed, that we may see other swerves. Right. And it's a good point that there is a way in which this is something that the U.S. ruling class really doesn't want to see, the U.S. kind of just abandoning the Middle East to whatever forces may fill the, the, the vacuum left by the U.S. But on the other hand, for a whole bunch of people in the United States, the idea that why is the U.S. spending, you know, billions upon billions of dollars to try to go, you know, run some other part of the world, like, and, and, the, and the way in which that's, kind of a fairly popular thing to say. And one that for people who are anti-imperialist, it's like, yeah, of course we don't want troops in the Middle East either. It's like, and that's the situation where it's someone like Trump who comes the closest to putting forward that kind of a solution. I mean, it's, it scrambles your consciousness. Yeah, it does. But you know, at the end of the day, he's saying we shouldn't be spending all this money in, in these, in foreign lands and they should be coming back home, which Put differently, could be a left-wing demand if you weren't also saying we should spend the money instead on building a $70 billion wall. Right, right exactly. Uh, but, but the point is, is that nobody else is saying this from, mm -hmm. from the establishment, from the elite, okay? Uh, he's filling a vacuum, and I think that shows why well, this withdrawal uh, or putative withdrawal in Syria, it, it's not something that should be cheered or, or, or condemned by the left because it's, it's, a, it's an imperial game, right? I mean, you're withdrawing right. troops from, from Syria so that another local region or regional power can come in and slaughter people 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how like these discussions of troop withdrawals look like when when the left isn't isn't there to actually make real class-based demands to say that like this is not in the interest of Syrians or in the interest of Americans. Thanks for taking the time to go through that. Thank you. All right, that's this week's episode of Better Off Red. Here's a rundown of the music that we used. First, there was Rage Against the Machine with its classic Killing in the Name, followed by Natani Means, God Bless America. Then there was Shakun, Build Your Castles. And this is MC Aboud, who's a revolutionary rapper from the Syrian city of Manbij, singing Forget Your Difficulties. We'll be back next week with another episode of Better Off Red. Bedoula kinta ya